We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode contains significant discussion and some descriptions of sexual violence, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. Everlyn Gaupe still remembers what life was like before the mine. Our environment there, we live in a thick jungle. Everlyn lives in a part of Papua New Guinea called Porgra. And the jungle there was so dense with vegetation that the sun didn't break through the canopy until a few hours after sunrise. In retrospect, life was relatively good. All the villages, the communities stay with their families in their own homes, peacefully with their pigs. Food was abundant. We had a good surplus of fresh food from the garden. We have big, huge landmass that we can go hunt for fresh wild fig, cassowary, cascas, birds. Frogs, we hunt and we pick up fresh nuts from the bush, the fresh fruits from the bushes, and also cultivate gardens for our own crops. But in 1990, the Porgara gold mine opened up, and life forever changed for the people in this isolated corner of Papua New Guinea. All our huge hunting places have been destroyed. Our food garden has been destroyed. Our drinking waters and everything has gone and we left with nothing. Living together with the huge mining company. With so much of their land taken away and the rest of the environment contaminated, it can be incredibly hard for the indigenous Apili people to feed their families. So many of them feel forced to go scavenging amongst the discarded rocks for little flecks of gold. So only way we would go chat for our daily food is for fanning for gold. That would sustain for our daily food on the table for the family. Men, women, boys and girls will go scavenge for gold. Sometimes they go to the piles of waste rock left after the ore has been processed. Or they go to the tailings ponds. We go into the red, smelly, chemical water to get the gold. We pen for gold because this gold is our bread, our daily food that will sustain for the evening. So we close our hearts, close our eyes. Everything is podcast in penning for the gold. But searching for gold in and around the Porgara mine can be a deadly activity. That's because of the mine security. They come in high speed with their security vehicles, with their uniforms, helmets, the car dogs. They come in, force, drive down to where we are busy penning for gold. The security guards grab all of us. They beat us, regardless of women, children, and men. Chase us with the guard dogs. Up until a few years ago, the security guards would shoot the men and boys they came across with live ammunition. The Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea has stated that there were 29 killings at the mine over the last 30 years. Today, the mine's security are more likely to fire rubber bullets. But that doesn't mean they're any less brutal than before. Some of us are caught and normally they take us to the main cell or jail, the police station, to be locked up. If they see the male folks, they lock them direct straight into the cells 
waiting for the security vehicles to transfer them into the main government police station, the cell block to be locked up. And when it comes to us, the female folks, the security personnel, regardless of who they are, nationals or locals, they play their tactics and techniques to question us and try to convince us to have sex with them to be released. They tell us, if you don't want to go to the main government police cell, okay, then let's have a deal. You have sex with us and we'll release or free you from going into the cell. Hundreds of women have reported being raped by mine security at the Porgara mine. Everlyn is one of them. They've used rubber bullets and grab hold of the woman and beat them and take them to the side and they rape us straight on the beach, on the red sandy waste beach on the hot rock. They don't really care who they do these things to. Women, girls. The Porgara mine in Papua New Guinea is today operated by Barrick Gold, one of the world's largest gold mining companies and a Canadian corporate powerhouse. Its founder, Peter Monk, is one of the most celebrated men in the history of Canadian business. We are struggling and dying today because of the Canadian mining company. Papua New Guinea is a part of the world that few Canadians ever think about. But for the people of Porgara, their lives have been shaped by the decisions of Canadian companies. It's hard to wrap your head around the violence that people in Porgara have suffered over the last 30 years. Murder as a matter of course, industrialized rape, environmental devastation. This isn't a story from some long ago colonial past. It continues to this day. So what happens when this company and the world are confronted with an almost mind-numbing list of atrocities? And why is it that Peter Monk and Barrick Gold continue to be so celebrated in this country? I'm Arshi Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. Richard Popluck is no stranger to mining communities. I grew up and have lived most of my life in South Africa, which effectively is a mining country. Richard is a South African and Canadian journalist who focuses on corporate wrongdoing. And it doesn't take very long before that beat takes you straight into the heart of big mining. I think to a degree, mining is inherently violent. There's something about gold in particular that brings out the worst in human beings. I don't think I'm the first person to point that out. He spent much of his career working in Africa, the Middle East, and South America. And he noticed that there was one name that kept popping up wherever he went. Barrick Gold. Barrick is one of the companies, sort of like Coca-Cola, that if you're paying attention, you're bumping into at almost a semi-constant basis. So it's not like I came to Barrick. It's almost like Barrick came to me. And so I came to be really, really interested in a, in a company like this, which really wasn't a, a sort of a pop cultural entity in Canada the way it should have been. No one talked about it, and yet it was everywhere. And one of Barrick's most productive minds anywhere in the world is the Polgara mine in Papua New Guinea. Richard went to visit it a few years back. Even by the standards of Papua New Guinea, Polgara is remote. The first white people didn't arrive until well into the 20th century. 
It's almost extraordinary to describe how far away this place is. To get to it requires a small plane. The runway itself is, shall we say, rather uh, roller coasterish to land on. You are far away when you're at the Porgora Joint Venture. And what he saw in Porgora was not pleasant. To be honest, it's one of the worst places I've ever been. It's awful. Porgora's town itself is quite depressed. Very little development, given how rich the mine has been. And while the surrounding natural landscape can be quite beautiful at times, this is by no means a beautiful place. One hesitates to describe a place as hell, but in many ways, Porgora is a decent approximation. It's a really, really, really unpleasant place to visit. Now, if you're thinking that Richard is being some kind of chauvinistic outsider, that description is similar to what I heard from people who live in Pogra. Here's Stanley Peter, an activist with the local Akali Tange Association. It's a dump site. I would say it's a dump site. When you look at it, it's like desert or something, barren land. You know, you see dust everywhere, stones. You don't see trees. It's a barren land and it's like a home to cowboys, uh, like home to uh, gangs or band of bandits. It's a war zone or something like that. That's how you see if you come to Pogora. Like so many other mining communities around the world, the people of Pogoro were promised wealth and development when the mine was being proposed. But things were broken from the very beginning. The mine wasn't founded by Barrick Gold, but it was another one of the giants of Canadian mining, Placer Dome. Placer was founded in the 1920s in Vancouver, B.C., and soon, they made major gold finds in Papua New Guinea, which was then an Australian colony. They were enormously daring in how far they would reach out. They would literally go anywhere and mine anything. Placer expanded elsewhere, including into Australia, where it was at one point that country's biggest landlord. By the 1980s, they were an enormous diversified mining company. That same decade, the anti-apartheid movement was picking up steam, and Placer realized that there would be a huge disinvestment from South Africa's famed gold mines. And Placidome became particularly aggressive about prospecting in places as far-flung as Papua New Guinea. Within Canadian mining circles, Placidome had a good reputation. In the Canadian political imaginarium, they were considered to be the good guys. They were from British Columbia. They had an understanding about the parlance of environmentalism. They had an understanding about the parlance, about community engagement. They had some skillful people who understood that mining was a negotiation between communities and the mining company. So in big mining terms, Placidome happened to be considered progressive. Whether or not that was true on the ground was uh, very much a different question. What's clear today is that Placer Dome made serious mistakes in how they set up the mine. The issue with Pogra right from the start is that while Placer Dome had done some decent work trying to understand how land tenure worked in Papua New Guinea, and while Placer Dome had been involved in Papua New Guinea for almost 70 years by the time that they opened up the Pogra joint venture, they didn't quite understand how contested land was in that specific region. The question of who has the right to a specific parcel of land is an enormously complicated issue in Porgra, and Placer Dome simply didn't take the time to understand the nuances. They were relatively glib about their own understanding of how that would function. So when the giant open pit Porgra mine was built, Placer Dome instituted an exclusion zone, which is a fairly common practice in mining. It basically designates an area around the mine site where no one except for mine employees can enter. But the truth is that the communities around the mine were never particularly far from the mine and never understood or never fully appreciated that they could no longer go on the mine and mine gold. So right from the very beginning, the Pogra joint venture became a war, and I mean that in the truest sense of the term, between the community and the mine itself. And that war heated up very quickly, and it got nasty very, very quickly as well. Catherine Cummins first heard about the Porgora mine 20 years ago. My name is Catherine Cummins. I work for Mining Watch Canada. At one of the organization's first conferences, 
Mining Watch Canada heard from a man named Phil Sherman, who lived in Papua New Guinea. He told the group about how the Pogram mine had been severely contaminating the river system for years. And Placer Dome was one of the biggest gold mining companies in the world. This is a Canadian company that had a decent reputation in Canada that was dumping its mine tailings directly into this river system, into this tropical river system. And that would not be allowed in Canada. That would be illegal in Canada. So how could a Canadian mining company be doing such a horrendous thing? So in 2000, Catherine went to Papua New Guinea to visit the mine and to see firsthand the environmental damage that was taking place. This bright red flow of material that was going into the Porgoro River and from the Porgoro River into subsequent rivers all the way down to the Gulf of Papua. And even back in 2000, the mine had a dystopian feel to it. The waste rocks, the leftover refuse from gold extraction, was piled high around Pogra, the size of small mountains. What was happening is so you've got the solid waste rock dumps, but then you've got this flow of sediment coming out from underneath them. And that was taking up the valleys around the mine. This is where people used to live. This is where they used to have their gardens. So now people were getting cut off. So from one village to another, they were cut off. They were cut off from a village to their new gardens that they would create somewhere else. People would have to cross the flows just to get from one place to another. But even that simple daily act could have deadly consequences. This material coming out of these waste rock dumps was a bit like quicksand. And so people were disappearing into this waste. And I actually saw an entire elementary school that had collapsed into the waste flow, was just being carried downstream and being buried by the waste. And for a few years, Catherine remained focused on the significant environmental impact of the Palgra mine. But then one day in 2005, she got an email. It detailed abuses that went far beyond polluting the rivers. This was about murder. Today, James Jimmy Wangia is a leading human rights activist in Papua New Guinea. He's the founder of the Akali Tonge Association. But back in 2004, he was just a young entrepreneur trying to earn a living in the Pogara Valley. He had no ideas or no backgrounds on uh, human rights, international laws, our country, local laws, UN guiding principles or whatsoever. That's McDean Robert Yapari speaking on behalf of James Wangia. McDean is also one of the leaders of the Akali Tonga Association. What spurred James into action was tragedy. His brother, John Wangia, was out collecting firewood at a waste dump site in April of 2004. Mine security came across him and killed him with a shotgun. A doctor reported that he was shot from around 30 feet away. John Wangia was 25 years old when he was killed, the father of three children. James was devastated by the loss of his brother, and he felt he had to do something. It was just after the battle of his uh, brother in 2004. He had to unite with some of the like-minded individuals who had lost their men previously in the same uh, nature of death as his brother. And he stood up. He had to put his uh, hands up and took the risk to fight against this uh, multinational mining company. So in doing so, uh, he has gone through so many pains, his struggles. James Wangia and the Akali Tange Association were facing what seemed like an impossible challenge. They had little money, no influence with the central government of Papua New Guinea, let alone international bodies. And they didn't even have consistent internet access. How are they supposed to go up against a company like Placer Dome, a giant multinational mining corporation? James organized a protest to decry the killing of his brother, but they were simply met with more brutality. Some of the participants or the protestants were also attacked by mine police in the course of the event. They filed police reports, but the cops did nothing. They thought of suing the company, but they had little faith in the courts. So since knowing that the laws in our country, Papua New Guinea, are weak. It's not that effective like any other countries. It's weak and it can be easily manipulated with political powers, monetary powers and such. When they go to coach in PNG, they would fail. So then they try to did their research. They began to compile as much information as they could about killings by mine security. 
and they were able to document in detail nine men who were shot to death by Pogrom mine security since 1989 and a number of other instances of beatings and torture. They called this document the shooting fields of Pogra. Because they didn't have easy access to the internet, they drove for four hours to another town, found a computer, and started to Google organizations that they could send it to. And that's when they found Mining Watch Canada. Catherine Kuhlman still remembers when she first got the report. I came into work and opened my inbox and there was this, this attachment, which was this incredible 163-page document. It was a horrific read. It's got pictures of body bags and really gruesome details from autopsies that have been done on people. They really tried very hard to be as factual as possible, to have dates and times when people were assaulted and how they were assaulted and get doctor's reports and quote from those doctor's reports. So it was not only a gruesome read, but it was also very believable right away. Up until that point, NGOs were mostly concerned about the environmental damage that was taking place in Pogra. But the shooting fields of Pogra helped focus attention on the killings that were being perpetrated by mine security. Placer Dome even acknowledged that eight people had been killed by mine security since 1989. But they claimed that all of those killings were in self-defense against armed locals. In 2006, things would change in Pogra, but not for the better. That year, Placer Dome, the Canadian mining giant, was acquired by an even bigger Canadian mining company, Barrick Gold. Barrick were a very, very different company to Placer Dome. To understand how things got even worse at the Pogra mine, you really need to understand the origins of Barrick and its founder, Peter Monk. In Toronto, Peter Monk is probably best known for the many buildings and institutions that are named after him in the city. The Monk School of Global Affairs, the Peter Monk Cardiac Center, the Monk Debates. And he's been widely celebrated, not just for his philanthropy, but as an icon of Canadian business. Here he is giving a speech in 2008. The fact that someone can come here without speaking the language, someone can come here without contacts, someone can come here without any kind of knowledge of the country and create a barrack that today stands employing maybe 20,000 people in five continents as a purely Canadian enterprise and has become a hallmark of major Canadian corporate activity. Peter Monk escaped Hungary during the Holocaust as a teenager and came to Canada in 1948. By the 1960s, he had co-founded Claritone, an immensely successful electronics manufacturer whose products were iconic in that era. But by the end of the decade, Claritone had collapsed. He moved into the hospitality industry in the South Pacific, but by the early 1980s, he and his partners decided to start a gold company. But it was a gold company with a twist. They would be effectively a mergers and acquisitions company. So what's very, very important to understand is that they were not miners. They were people who bought mining companies. They were Bay Street boys. Very, very aggressive, very smart in a number of the financial innovations that they brought to bear in terms of how gold could be hedged. In the 1980s, Barrick acquired a Nevada company called Gold Strike that turned into a massive success. And that exploded the company onto the world stage, made them one of the biggest gold players very, very quickly in the world. And by the 2000s, it was one of the largest gold miners in the world. In 2006, Barrick purchased Placer Dome, making it the owner-operator of the Pogara mine. Remember that in the context of Canadian mining, Placer Dome was considered relatively enlightened. Even though their security was killing locals and they were polluting the environment, Placer Dome at least tried to foster some good relationships with Porgarans. That said, when Barrick took the project over in 2006, they stripped away a lot of the more progressive elements of community relations that existed under Placer Dome. They had no pretensions about community relations. They had no pretensions about being the so-called nice guys. They weren't interested in that. What they were interested in is results. And the mine, without question, became crueler and somewhat more vicious 
in its particulars when Barrick took the property over. Barrick's DNA was mergers and acquisitions. They were a 1980s Bay Street financial company. And when they came to take over Pogra, it was destined to end in tragedy. The sexual violence that has plagued the Pogra mine isn't new. Women have reported being raped by mine security from the very beginning. But something changed in the early 2000s when Placer Dome was still running the site. Hundreds of women were sexually assaulted around or in the exclusion zone for a variety of so-called offenses. But without question, this form of terrorism was used routinely, probably since 2003, to keep women off the exclusion zone. Placer Dome had long complained about the illegal mining that would take place on the mine site. At some point, a decision had been made, I'm not sure by whom or when, or if this decision itself was coherent, that the way to keep women out of the exclusion zone was to use sexual violence against them. And that process started, I would say, around 2003, 2004, and became endemic after Barrick took over Placer Dome, when the brutality to keep people off the exclusion zone increased. Now, I think it's important to focus in on this point. What Richard is arguing is that the sexual violence wasn't just an incidental part of the mine's operations. Instead, he accuses the mine's security of using rape as a weapon to achieve a particular goal, to keep women off of the mine site. There's no question that people were straying onto the exclusion zone. There's no question that under the specifics of the mining contract, that those people straying onto the mine would be considered illegal. But the punishment and the form of the incentive to keep these people away from the mine became very quickly sexual violence. Cressida Koala is the founder of the Pogra Red River Women's Association, and she works with survivors of sexual violence in the region. She was herself physically and sexually assaulted by mine employees when she worked for Barrick in 2011. I am one of the Ibli women who is very obsessed in what had happened to my, to my people's life. Sexual violence was a silent violence all through since the mine began. And the survivors that she works with describe a systematic approach to sexual violence by mine security. Women and girls are often attacked right on the mine site if they're discovered by mine security, or they're threatened with jail if they don't sleep with security officers. They told us that under one condition, if you don't want us to have sex with you, you have to go straight to jail. They don't want to go to jail, actually. So they used to let them use them to have sex with them and then send them home. But the impact was really great, and they lived with the silent violence for so long. For a long time, women and girls in Pogora were reluctant to talk about what had been done to them. We went down to the dump area to look for the gold and we were raped, but we never told our stories to our male relatives because if we told them, they will say that you are the cause of it. Why did you go down there? And we were always the people who are blamed. We took the blame. We were right or wrong. We were innocent, but we took the blame all the time. But in the late 2000s, women began to speak out, and NGOs like Mining Watch Canada heard more and more stories of sexual violence in Pogra. Here's Catherine Cummins again. In 2008, when we finally were able to bring two people in from the Akali Tangi Association to the shareholder meeting, and that they stood up in front of all of the shareholders, the board of directors, it was Peter Monk at the time, you know, heading the company, and said, listen, We've come all the way from Papua New Guinea, halfway across the world, to tell you that your security are shooting and killing our boys and our men and raping and gang raping our women and our girls. And the company was in complete denial. When they were approached by the media, they would say, no, this is outrageous. If this was happening, we would know about it. As Mining Watch Canada and researchers from New York University and Harvard gathered more documentation on the sexual violence, Barrick would soon acknowledge that rape was an issue at the Pogara mine. 
Finally, by the end of 2010, Barrick said, okay, maybe, maybe there's a problem with the rapes. Wouldn't talk about any of the other things. And I think it's pretty clear that the rapes were where Barrick was legally most vulnerable. They would be willing to argue all the rest of it in court, the house burnings, the the drownings in the waste flows. It's like, take me to court. But the rapes, they knew they were vulnerable on. What would be your defense for the fact that your private and public security are targeting and chasing and gang raping women and children? Barrick agreed to institute a grievance mechanism to provide compensation to women who are raped by their security guards. Women would get a cash settlement of around $8,000 and sign a document stating that they would never sue Barrick. 119 women went through this process. And because of barriers in how this was administered, that number is almost certainly downplaying just how many women and girls were actually assaulted by mine security. 11 women actually chose to sue Barrick. They ended up receiving 10 times the compensation compared to the others. Evelyn Gaupe, who you heard from at the top of the show, was one of the women who went through the grievance process, and she found it severely lacking. Unfortunately, all of us were illiterate, semi-educated. We really didn't understand it well. The terms and conditions that Barrick have said, and also the legal advices that Barrick have sent in to talk to us, they conned us. They have played their tactic in tricking us, the women. Barrick did end up increasing the payouts for the 119 women, but it was significantly less than what the women who sued Barrick received. And that's an ongoing festering sore. Um, You know, the women say our rape was no different. Why is it that if they'd had proper legal representation, they, they would have had a better settlement than going through this grievance mechanism? And though Barrick now does acknowledge that sexual violence is a problem at their mine in Pogra, they've consistently refused to take responsibility for other crimes. McDee and Robert Yapari, the activist from the Akali Tange Association who you heard from earlier, has experienced this firsthand. My brother, my late brother, was shot by PJV, security guards. His brother, Jerry Yapari, was killed by Barrick Security in 2009. At the time, McDean worked as a contractor for the mine. So I had to quit my job, came out, and joined my dad, Wahangola Jimmy, in the advocacy group to fight for justice. For my late uh, brother and for my uncle John Wengia and the rest of the victims. Because knowing that there won't be any others who will take the risk to fight this. And one thing that McDean says he's learned during his time as an activist is that when Barrick employees commit human rights violations in Pogra, there's very few places to turn. The police, he says, mostly do the bidding of the mining company. Take, for example, what happened to Winjima. Winjima is a village near the mine, and Barrick Security have long viewed it as a center for illegal raids on the mine site. In 2009, Barrick asked the Papua New Guinea government to bring in mobile police units to help secure the mine site. Those units evicted hundreds of residents in Winjima and burned their homes to the ground. And in 2017, it happened again. They have used force to evict them out of the areas just by accusing them of like uh, they were having, you know, prostitutions, drinking alcohols and such, you know, around that area. They have burned down several houses and they have uh, raped some young girls. McDean went down to Winjima. He found that 150 houses had been burned down and residents told him that three young girls had been raped and six young men were badly beaten. And he spoke to a police officer who told him that the raids were done because Barrick instructed them to. McDean wrote all of this up and put out a press release. They came and then they arrested me. So I was arrested, put behind bars, and I nearly spent the whole day and all night at the police lockups. And uh, they have charged me for putting up documentary publication against uh, the company. He had been charged with cyber crimes for allegedly defaming Barrick. 
we went through a lengthy court battle and I won the case. <laughs> so I won the case. <laughs> and uh, the case was dismissed and my bail money was reimbursed. And during his legal proceedings, a police officer testified that the order to burn down Winjima had indeed come from mine officials. Uh, one of the witnesses that tendered in my court case, a policeman, uh, said that it was Mubarak, security manager, that gave orders for them to evict that village. So that was written in one of the statements. Now, Barrick has strenuously denied that they ordered the police to raid Wanjima. But there's good reason to think that Barrick does have significant influence on the Papua New Guinea police in Polgora. That's because they pay them. Police work for PJV because they are paid 200 guinea per day as allowance on top of the normal salary that they are paid by the national government. Now, PJV refers to the Polgora Joint Venture, the formal name of the mine's operator. If they don't follow company's order to evict that village, they would not have been paid the 200 guinea allowance. So in order for them to get the 200 guinea allowance, they have to possibly evict the village and even come after me and arrest me. McDean says that he has often filed complaints with the police, but those are largely ignored. In 2017, Mining Watch Canada helped bring Everlyn Gaupe and another Porgaran activist to Toronto so that they could confront Barrick at their annual shareholders meeting. For Everlyn, it was a chance to finally tell the truth about what was happening in her home, right to the people at the very top of this corporate empire, the people who can make change happen. And we felt very excited landing in uh, Toronto, meeting our colleagues, our partners there, and also meeting with the First Nation. We shared the same pains and struggles and all this. We were very happy sharing our experiences, our pain, the impact that mine add on our family, our cultures, traditions, beliefs. The women held proxy votes so that they would have a right to speak at the meeting. Everlyn had prepared a set of remarks. She was planning to tell Barrick's leadership and its shareholders how their mine had poisoned the land and the water that her people depend on. How their company's security guards attack and rape women and young girls right next to the bright red rivers of chemical waste. How she had been one of those girls. But Barrick wouldn't let her speak. We went in with Catherine Cummins to the room and we were not allowed to speak. None of us spoke. The CEO himself, Barrick Fira Monk, was there. In person, he was right there. They should have showed some little bit of respect, which they played inhuman. Showed no respect to us. Everlyn saw all of this as just another insult to both herself and to the Apili people. Everlyn recalled that in 2011, when Peter Monk, the CEO of Barrick, was asked about the mass sexual violence his employees were perpetrating in Porgora, he blamed the culture of Papua New Guinea. Quote, Gang rape is a cultural habit. Of course, you can't say that because it's politically incorrect. It's outrageous. We have to pretend that everyone's the same and cultures don't matter. Unfortunately, it's not that way. In the international arena, Peter Monk have showed disrespect to us, the Pili community, Pili people, and our culture by saying that raping and those of sexual violences are normal or norm to their culture, which is wrong. And it clearly showed on the 2017 when he rejected us in the room by not letting us pick our experiences and thoughts and the pains and struggles that we went through. And while Papua New Guinea does have a high rate of gender-based violence, Catherine Cummins thinks that explanation completely elides Barrick's responsibility. 
this is not just something that's happening at Barracks Mine in Papua New Guinea. This is also happening at Barracks Mine in Tanzania. So now we have to say, oh, well, the Tanzanian people are violent people and they, they rape a lot. Oh, it's also happening at Ahad Bay's mines in Guatemala. Oh, well, the Guatemalan people are violent people and they rape a lot. There's only so far you can do that to try and actually blame the victims for what was being perpetrated to them. The problem here is a militarized mine, a mine that is impoverishing the people whose land it is, who have lived there for generations, who has destroyed their culture, destroyed their way of life, and then have their security guards targeting women, chasing them, raping them and girls, and then say, oh, no, 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 this is not a mine problem or a barrack problem. This is a Papua New Guinea problem. That doesn't hold. That doesn't wash. The indignities and atrocities suffered by Pogorans because of the mine are immense. Killings, mass rape, mass evictions, environmental destruction. So what does Barrick have to say about all of this? Richard Poplick spent time with Barrick managers in Pogora, most of whom are themselves from Papua New Guinea. Their view is the mine has paid its taxes. It's paid to improve the communities surrounding it. Why are we so maligned? All we ask is that we do our work unmolested by the community around us, but do whatever we can to hire people to bring them into the mine. Why all this trouble? Why all this mess? Why all this bother? They believe they have hired community members to come and work with them on a scale that is commensurate with their obligations. And more so, they believe they've poured a lot of cash into the community itself. There's something to be said for that. The Pogora mine has historically made up around 12% of Papua New Guinea's exports. So there is a benefit to the central government. Tax revenue and services by the state in Papua New Guinea do not trickle down to the people. So when a mine like the PJV says, we pay our tax, people in Pogora say, well, to what end? When do we see the benefit? And the mining company has built some infrastructure for the local community. But Richard says that little of that will last. So when they build a clinic, you still need doctors, you need nurses, you need an infrastructure behind it. When you build roads, those roads eventually will need to be maintained by someone else. When you build sports fields, those sports fields will still need to be maintained. When you build schools, you still need school teachers. If there's no cooperation, no connective tissue between effectively the small money the mining company is putting in to help empower the local community and the provincial and national authorities, then it's all worthless. So there is very much the sense that it's all just ghost work, really. It will all be gone when the mine leaves. McDee and Robert Yapari says that the mine does provide some benefits, but that doesn't erase the enormous harms it has caused. If we can put it on a scale and measure or compare the good things that the company does and the bad things that impacts or like negative impacts that it it has on the lives of the local communities and the indigenous people. I would rather say that they only do 25% good, but 75%, you know, destroying us. We reached out to Barrick for comment on many of the accusations that have been made by pogrins, NGOs, and journalists, but they did not get back to us by press time. In 2020, Papua New Guinea's government decided not to renew Barrick's lease for the Pagara mine. They wanted Barrick out of the country. They wanted this mine, if it's going to continue at all, to continue by a national organization, not by these foreigners who had caused so much harm. And yet when the government said, no, we're not going to renew this lease and pointed specifically to environmental impacts and legacy issues, Barrick sued the government of Papua New Guinea, both in Papua New Guinea and before an international tribunal. And this is a huge threat for a very poor country, you know, to have to deal with legal costs for years into the future and possibly lose, because these international tribunals are not places where many governments are winning against multinationals. Barrick's CEO made numerous trips to Papua New Guinea to try to win back the right to mine in Pogora. And he even acknowledged that the company had lost the, quote, social license to operate in the country. But Barrick refused to walk away. And eventually the government caved, though they did extract a much larger ownership stake in the venture. Now, one question I had was why was Barrick so determined to keep this mine? 
over and over again. The most serious human rights accusations have dogged the company in Pogra. Wouldn't it be safer to just pack up and walk away? For all the trouble that the PJV has been, for all the violence, for all the death, for all the awful things that have unfolded, gold sells at $1,800 an ounce and has for the last several years. Barracks, average cost of an ounce, factoring in all of the trouble at a project like the PJV is around $800 an ounce. And so you start to understand how ecstatically profitable this kind of work is. Really comes down to, is the trouble worth it? And the answer for a mining company is absolutely. And there's also another dark truth that underlies the situation in Pogara. The environment there has been irrevocably damaged. The lives of Pograns has already been disrupted in such damaging ways. Were the PJV to pack up and leave tomorrow, the provincial and national authorities have done such an awful job of developing the region that there would be absolutely nothing left. There would be nothing there. There would be no return to some sort of sylvan past. There's nothing to return to. There'd just be a really, really big hole in the ground and a really, really upset and restive community. Nothing else. Pogarin's experienced some of that over the last two years, while the mine was shut down during the ownership dispute. Here's Everlyn Gaupe again. And after the two years of mine shutdown, Pogera is the leading in poverty and anger. They see a lot of uh, malnourished children and also adult ones too. No provincial government, no national government, any form of government in Papua New Guinea stepped in to help provide us with any food supply during these two years of suffering. And also we did not see any funding from the climate changes or any funding from the terrible disease COVID. But Everland still believes it was wrong to let Barrick to continue to operate the mine. It was very huge mistake, very disappointing for the government to bring back Barrick to mine after people have been impacted, affected, many lives have been lost, everything has been destroyed. Still, government wants Barrick back. Peter Monk, the founder of Barrick Gold, and the man ultimately responsible for what happened at the Pogara mine, died in 2018. Throughout the Canadian media, Monk's philanthropic and business legacies were celebrated. When Peter Monk passed, I was struck by how little the media interrogated his, his legacy, to be honest. I was astonished at the fact that no real questions were asked about the work that a gold mining company had done since 1983 all over the world. I think it's starting to emerge now that the company, while enormously efficient and productive for its investors and for the investment community at large, there were real, real issues with how Barrick operated. And none of that can be separated from Peter Monk's legacy, largely because he was such a micromanager and was so involved in so many aspects of the company. But despite his overbearing management style, Monk rarely ever went to his company's mines or visited the communities they impacted. And I think that is an extraordinarily immoral way of running a company. During the time that Barrick was operating the Pulgara mine, it won a number of corporate social responsibility awards. The awards that Barrick won under Peter Monk for its corporate social responsibility initiatives were very often spurious and ill-deserved. And that was certainly the case in Pogra. That was, by any stretch, a badly run property that simply did not deserve any of the hosannas it was given by the industry. A few months before Peter Monk's death, the Me Too movement kicked off in earnest, sparking a global discussion about sexual violence and harassment in workplaces. And yet, here was a company 
accused of dozens of killings and hundreds of rapes that was being praised up and down in the Canadian media. People hate Barrett Gold in so many places around the world. And they hate Barrett Gold because that company has destroyed their livelihoods, has destroyed their families, has killed their loved ones, has raped their women, has contaminated their land that they live on. And often these are Indigenous people. And to see, you know, the founder and the leader of that company hailed as some kind of visionary corporate leader in Canada was painful, remains painful. Pogrins like Everlyn Gaupe, Cressida Koala, and McDean Robert Yapari are still fighting with all their means to get justice for the violence that has been inflicted upon themselves, their families, and their people. We have already exhausted all avenues in this world. So where else can we go to seek justice for the victims? We want justice to prevail. Justice is all, all we want. So and those that were responsible for that Mbappic murdering matter must be held responsible and must face justice and must face the law. What many indigenous Pogorans want is to be resettled somewhere else, something the company has so far refused to do. Barrick and the government should have resettled the people the Hippili indigenous people far some kilometers away from the mining ground. If there wouldn't be mining in our Hippili land, Pogera, the people should drink fresh water, have access to their virgin jungle, grow food from the fresh gardens, we should not encounter any difficulties that we are going through today. Please, Canadian good leading human rights country, please look into Bogera. Ipili indigenous people need your support. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Richard Poplick in The Walrus, Catherine Cummins for Mining Watch Canada, the Akali Tange Association, Hilary Beaumont for Vice News, Gabriel Friedman in The Financial Post, and so many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod, you can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. And our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com.